Yo, everybody, and welcome to the Madness Continues podcast. Firstly, thank you so much if you're dropping by here from the James Altucher Show. Uh, James is a buddy, and he is a hilarious comedian on stage, intelligent dude off stage. I mean, you know that because you follow his stuff, but uh, I was very flattered to have him uh, invite me over, record an episode of my podcast together, and then have him post a little bit of it there. We nerded out over some stuff for a while. It was a ton of fun. I hope we're going to do that more. Uh, so you are familiar with that part of the conversation if you came over here from the Altature Show. But uh, the further part of this conversation is a whole bunch of different things. We talk a little bit about the book that me and William Petit, uh, my co-author, wrote called The Power Bible. That will be on uh, Amazon Prime very soon, if not already. There will be a link in the show notes in case you want to get on a list for that release. And we talk uh, about uh, his message, you know, choosing yourself, what that means, some of the stuff that, you know, if you know James's is, uh, oeuvre will not be any new news to you, unfortunately. But we do jump into my story and how a lot of what he said related to helping me get out of a very difficult time in my life. And we have a lot of fun and make some jokes Jay, of course, Wujin Jay is in the room, as well as Robin, and we uh, pull them into the conversation at different points. So this was a really good time. I had a blast talking with James, and I'm just excited to bring this to you. And welcome to The Madness Continues. I hope you check out some of my other episodes. We've got all kinds of different people on this podcast, from comedians to artists to musicians to authors to porn stars to philosophers, just people all over and uh, having crazy conversations and some laughs. So without any further ado, thank you so much for dropping by, and we will jump into the conversation with James and Brendan. Thanks so much, guys. Everybody acts like every other person is running for political office or something. Yeah, like everybody's running. It. And it's like, dude, we're not, I'm not trying to win aldermen of this street corner. Like, I don't understand why we're taught, why, you know. I, well, I did last night. I did one. I was just trying out a joke. Just it was a topical one. I said, um, you know, isn't it amazing how all the friends we grew up with in high school are now experts on the Iranian military like on <laughs> Facebook? Like and some guy was talking about like troop movements and Hezbollah. And yeah, Hamas. I think I and saw I'm like, dude, you're my fucking gym teacher 20 years ago. <laughs> like, what do you know? And people were laughing a little bit. But and then I, but then I. I did one of those follow-on jokes, a battle joke. I said, you guys were hoping to forget about World War III by coming to a comedy club, and all I'm talking about is there. And then everybody laughed about that. So It's super weird, too, because I feel like the other, the other thing that I immediately saw online was that, like, I don't know anything about this guy. Like, Suleiman, dude, I don't know anything. Nobody who knew who he existed a week ago. Yeah, no, you, that's who what was, you said on the pod, is you're like, four days ago, nobody knew who this guy was. Yeah. And then now... Everybody's got an opinion on him. Yeah. And like, it's just, it's so ridiculous how immediately polarizing any of this stuff becomes because Reddit is all like, this was a terrible, he, here's all the things that Trump is doing wrong in this situation. And then like my uncle, who's like super duper right wing and like the biggest Trump supporter on the planet is like, here's all the reasons this guy was a bad guy. And I'm like, like, can we like, seriously, this is, it makes no sense. Like, and, can we and by the way, now you already see, I bet you as of today, it's not even in the news. <laughs> No, like I bet you this is just all over, just like every other thing is done right it's gonna now. Be in, it's going to be in the news for like three more days, and then yeah, it won't maybe. be until Iran does something. I kind of feel like 
it's already done. Like, you know, the news cycle is already 36 hours, 72 hours. We're already done. We already forgot about impeachment. That was yeah. like the biggest thing in the world like a week yeah. ago. Well, well, <laughs> you know why? Because a much bigger issue happened right after the impeachment that, that was really polarizing as well, which was, is the rise of Skywalker good or not? Like that oh, replaced- it's not, I'm sure it's not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. Oh, my God. I'm not going to see it. I don't want to give Disney. I know, Jay. I know. <laughs> I don't want to give Disney any money. I, Jay even- Did you saw, see it? Are you, what are you talking about? Like, where are you getting, are you recording this? Yeah. Okay, good. Because yeah. this is like the biggest. <laughs> we, I saw it at 12.15 a.m. opening day. Did you really? Yeah. Did you like it? No, it was the worst movie ever. <laughs> it was not, it was not a movie. It was a collection of anecdotes that vaguely paralleled the first trilogy. <laughs> like, yeah. Here's my theory on this. I just want to, I just want to get this out. Into, on the record, on the public record. This is the public record. A podcast is the public record. Didn't that you is know? what it is now. This is, where's the congressional transcript with this podcast in it? I'd like to <laughs> yeah. enter Brandon's podcast into the congressional, the congressional transcript, yeah, Mr. Speaker. Right. Let's just drop it. Yeah, we're going to get Library of Congress. What's the LOC number on this podcast? Um, so here's here's what I think. I And this is what the online consensus seems to be, is that Disney buys the Lucasfilm franchise. Uh, they are way more interested. And I don't think it's just Kathleen Kennedy. I think it's like overarching, I think like Disney executive decisions are basically like, let's just, we just need to roll Star Wars movies out. Let's just keep it going. And so they really quickly get the schedule together and they don't have any ideas. There's no story yet. And so they basically hire J.J. Uh, Abrams and his team to create the first movie, the, the Force Awakens, which was pretty good. I like The Force Awakens. I actually like The Last Jedi. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I don't like The Last Jedi. You know why I like it? Because I like the fact that they acknowledge finally that anybody can be force sensitive, which sure. makes sense. Yeah. I, it just, the the last, to me, I felt like, I, oh God, I could rant about The Last Jedi for like an hour. There's like so many, I, but it, I just didn't like it. And the thing that more bothered me than the actual story, because you could have a difference on taste in The Last Jedi. I don't think, and I just want to say this, I don't think that if you like The Last Jedi, you're objectively wrong. I don't think that there's like an objectively bad... Right, it's the same with The Force Awakens. Like, I like The Force Awakens, but then the day after, I remember uh, Tucker Max actually wrote a review where he said, this is beat by beat, uh, a repeat of, you know, episode four Star Wars, the original Star Wars. Yeah. So I say, okay, that's a reasonable uh, yeah, argument. Yeah, totally fine. I mean, it is whatever. It's it's not. It's like look. There's a million pizza places in this city, and if you went to a, the top ten, you'd get the same stuff on every pizza, and it would still be great. All of them would be good. You know what I mean? Maybe you get tired of pizza after a while. It doesn't bother me. It's a different flavor of the same thing. Last, the last Jedi was not that. I think the last Jedi was Ryan Johnson just being like, "I'm gonna just do whatever I want to do," and they'll switch everything up. Right. So I agree. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I agree. That they should have had an, a a plan yeah. in place. And it looked like okay. he was just doing his own That's thing. That's what bothered me mm -hmm. more than the fact that I didn't like the movie was that they, they it just became clear after that point that Disney did not have a plan for what was going to happen. Well, I think I think their plan was let's give this to J.J. Abrams, who did Lost. He did Star Trek. He's clearly a genius. But what they don't realize in the nuances of J.J. Abrams is that J.J. Abrams is great at starting stories. And he has never once in his life ended a story like <laughs> like Lost. That was the most brilliant start. The first two or three seasons, the most brilliant start of any TV series in history. And my it became opinion, impossible to finish. Yeah, it became it was so many great 
things happening that he couldn't bring them all together at the end. Star Trek, everyone remembers the beginning of the reboot of Star Trek, like the first, let's say, hour of that movie. I can't remember anything that else that ever happened after that. And Star Wars, okay, he started this, he rebooted the franchise in some sense with this these sequels. And he just, he never, he doesn't end stuff. He doesn't know how to end stuff. Yeah. And then every other series, what he did, Flash Forward. He did all these other mediocre series that he started off great, great premise, and then just didn't end. And then he can't end it properly. Yeah. So this is exactly. They put John Favreau in there, who's doing a great job with The Mandalorian. Okay, Maybe so that was my, because John Favreau was involved with the Marvel movies. Yeah. And had, we, by the way, never talk about like any nerd shit this much on this podcast but like <laughs> but this is great because i have so many opinions on this but like that's my argument against people who keep talking in star wars they're like well yeah but it's like they have to and they start saying this shit and i'm like marvel did all of this marvel did all of this correct so they don't get an excuse of like well they're trying to deal with the well marvel had all this like canon stuff that they could draw from and like so did star wars and there was this extremely huge extended universe and the mistake they made was paying attention to none of it and then finally when the last jedi and then solo bombed at the office they decided oh we got to pull all this stuff in and maybe we should pay attention to it and that's where the rise of skywalker came from and that's why there's so much like you said jay clone wars fan service so so the, so uh you don't want any spoilers right for rise of skywalker I've, I've got them all but 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 just I, and this, is not, this is just not a spoiler there's, I d challenge anyone to fi find a storyline in Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker. There is no arc of the hero. There is nothing happens in the entire movie except lots of co a collection of intense moments put together that have no rhyme or reason at all. There, there's no connection from one moment to the next. It's just like to create more toys and yeah. somehow somehow t but some people loved it i cannot understand you must not have watched any movies in the past 40 years if you like this movie yeah so you must have just wanted to see let's just see ray again oh there she is let's see poe again there he is <laughs> and then you love it yay i you saw like playing with legos <laughs> it was like written by an eight-year-old with all their legos in front of him let's put in a lesbian kiss yay there's a lesbian kiss. oh my god like yeah and that and then the craziest thing and this will be a spoiler but like and i didn't see the movie so the fact that i know this is nuts but they're like yeah there's like a cavalry charge on a on the star destroyer and i'm like why would it feels like somebody just like exactly you said like somebody just shoved all these elements together and they were like you know what would be it's like a kid who goes to the like the the fountain drink with like the soda and then just hits every single one to put yeah. it into one thing well that's exactly what it's like because uh, speaking of that cavalry on the death star there was one moment in there where you know finn is about to die or whatever and then fortunately the millennium falcon um shoots right underneath right underneath him they open up the hatch Lando Christian's like, come on. And, you know, Finn drops right in. What does that remind you of? End of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Like every single moment in Rise of the Skywalker relates back to some yeah. other film. This is like, so, and by the way, sometimes <laughs> it's not Star Wars. Sometimes it's Star Trek. It relates yeah, back to That's so funny. Like the whole thing's insane. And then, okay. That's speak, like the cute cut to the clip of George Lucas. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and by the way, George Lucas did not write most of Star Wars. He was he's such he, he had this idea, Arc of the Hero, Space Western, combine the latest science fiction special effects with Western stories, which by the way And his, samurai films. Right. And his his vision is finally realized only in the Mandalorian. Mandalorian yeah. Agreed. So he writes the script for Star Wars. 
It's so horrible. They don't know what to do with it. So his wife, Marsha, who he then divorced immediately afterwards, write, rewrites the entire script. And edits it into what we know today as the original Star Wars. Right. Like, she was the genius. She's the genius who put it together. You look at some of these original clips, and I love that, like, there's a, in the Empire of Dreams, they even say it themselves, like, Star Wars made this documentary. And, like, Lucasfilms com commissioned this documentary. And in the documentary, even in their own documentary, there's a line where they're like, the first cut of Star Wars was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> like, yeah, because George Lucas did it. Yeah. Like, and, uh, but, and then, by the way, the books that were the extended canon and the canon, whatever. Okay, I don't like the fact that movies, you know, not everyone should have to read 75 books to understand a movie. But they were pretty good. Like, and I had one of the authors on my podcast, Jim Lucino, who wrote uh, Darth uh, Plagueis. He wrote about, a book about Vader. He wrote a book about uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. And those were good books. And I called him and said, you want to come on the podcast before uh, Star Wars comes, The Rise of Skywalker comes out? And he's like, nah, they cut all my books out. Like, no yeah. longer interested. Yeah, suddenly they're like not canon anymore. They just like, and, yeah. And they were great. Like Darth Plagueis describes the whole rise of Palpatine because Plagueis was his. Anyway, this is really nerding out. But on Marvel, you would think that maybe Disney did a better job of Marvel. Those were huge hits. And look, to Marvel's credit, the top 10 movies of all time now are all Disney movies. Yeah. Like, it's amazing how smart Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, did buying Marvel, Pixar. Pixar was their biggest acquisition ever. Then Marvel, he bought for nothing. He bought Star Wars for nothing. And he's created them into the, the biggest franchises ever. But even Mar Marvel Avengers Endgame, which is like the biggest movie of all time now, that kind of disgusted me a little bit. Like, mm. the guy was clearly... Um, Thanos, the, the villain, was clearly spouting the the progressive climate change Malthusian line, <laughs> which is that There's you too know many too too many people too many in the universe are are taking all of our resources. And and by the way, I'm not just making this up because when you the first time you see him in Endgame, he's on 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 a planet as a farmer, like yeah. he's just like yeah. he's just like watering plants. Yeah, this is like how he he would choose to live his life after his work is done. Right, and and and. Then you have all these guys dressed up in suits. We have to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> like he's just by himself. It's being super up. bizarre. And it's yeah. it's strange to watch because you're like, I guess like because the thing that that hooks you is you're like, I guess that we love our friends who have died enough to want to bring them back, which is why we're cheering for the Avengers in this movie. But it is kind of bizarre because you're like, this guy had like a whole philosophy that kind of made sense when you thought about well, it. Well, and not very different from the philosophies of many people yeah, like you said, now. Thomas, and, Thomas Malthus. Yeah, and Malthus back to 1830s, where it's always been kind of a trope in, in uh, world history that, hey, or at least since the Industrial Revolution. There's that, too hey, many freaking yeah, people. Too many people. We're not going to be able to handle the future because yeah. uh, it's so uncertain. And we see it now. Like, look, as much as I love Andrew Yang, and we were just talking about this earlier, again, there's this fear like, oh, no, robots are going to, it's like the Terminator. Robots are yeah. going to replace our jobs yeah. and then kill us. Because when I brought, bring this up on Twitter, like maybe robots are not going to replace our jobs. The first response I got was, yeah, but what about when they start killing us? Yeah. And <laughs> Haven't you seen Black Mirror, James? <laughs> Black Mirror. Or uh, have you seen Arnold Schwarzenegger in any anything, movie? Anything <laughs> right. ever. Yeah. And let me, like, I, I always say, like, okay, do you know, do you know any humans? Because the first time a robot, quote unquote, wakes up and becomes human, they're not. They're just gonna go home and binge watch Game of Thrones. Like they're not gonna <laughs> find a gun and start yeah, shooting problem, everyone. Okay, but the problem is that they're gonna binge watch Game of Thrones at like to the speed of light, and then they're gonna be angry that we didn't produce. And they're gonna be angry at season eight's conclusion, and they're gonna go murder DB Weiss and David Benioff. 
Well, or or maybe they're gonna start writing better movies, which I'm fine with either. Like, uh, you need to have you need to get Sam Harris on your podcast, man, and talk uh, to him about. This. Oh, I had Sam Harris on my podcast, but I not we didn't talk about this. Oh, about oh no, AI you know though. what? We did talk about AI, and see, Sam Harris is a great example of super strong intellectual. He's so smart. I read everything he writes, but a lot of people who talk about AI who have no technical backgrounds, and I have an an AI and technical background. Uh, they they kind of talk about this thing, the singularity, where robots are just going to wake up and be intelligent yeah. and conscious. It's not going to happen. It's never, ever going to happen. AI was a marketing term to get funding from the Department of Defense. At a basic level, AI is just advanced statistics, and that's it. Yeah. And so anybody who talks about the singularity, they have no idea what they're talking about. Can I about. tell you something? Some I, I Look, I love you, and sometimes you're intelligence frightens me <laughs> like how much is there a like, let me ask you this question james is there a subject that you don't actually know a lot about uh 13th century medieval fighting which yuval harari wrote his thesis on i could not discuss that with him on the did podcast he seriously did he yeah and then he and then he was like that was boring so i switched to writing about the entirety of human history <laughs> i could talk to him about 13th century medieval fighting probably. there you go i was so, a, for a while i did the so if you're a nerd you play dungeons and dragons if you are like king of the nerds, you live action role play. Ah, see, I was a nerd, but not king of the nerds. If you're the emperor of the nerds, you move on from live action role playing to the Society for Creative Anachronists, where you put on actual suits of armor and fight each other. Right. So, so I had lots of friends in that. I love, I love that. That Robin audibly gasped when I said okay. that. <laughs> okay, I would say though, here's the thing. Here's because I remember the, those groups, and I remember people saying, "Hey, you should come to it." And, I, this and you is were like, no thanks, I want to get laid? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't like that either because I'm still in the nerd category. But uh, the one thing I thought to myself, that is too white for me. <laughs> <laughs> and people say, but you're white. And I'm like, it's true, but I'm Jewish. <laughs> Jewish people do not join the Society for Creative that's, Anachronists. That's true. We just don't give a shit about <laughs> medieval fighting. <laughs> that's so funny. There was one Jew in the Society for Creative Anachronists and he just loaned all of us money. <laughs> so he was the only one who could do it because in the 13th century, no one was allowed to do it if you were Gentile. Right, right. right. If the, but there was, but even then, it's like, I guess there was like the, in Shakespeare, you know, had Shylock, but there wasn't really a full banking system. It was just individuals then. Um, but That's true. Individual the, Jews. Yeah. So. Individual Jews. Uh, they cornered the market, man. Um, so is there any other movies that, okay, let me ask you about. Uh, Wakanda. I forget if we've talked about this before. This is a so we're just breaking down all the Disney movies. Black Panther. Yep. Uh, I think this is the most racist movie of all time. Do you? Be yeah. Because and it's and it's it's the Wakandans come out of their little town. They pretend to be shepherds, like the poorest country in Africa, because specifically they don't want other African countries to know about their technology yeah. and steal it. Well, it's weird <laughs> because the excuse that they use in the story is like, we don't want other countries, not just African countries, but just other colon like but colonial powers. But they to other African countries though Yeah, too. but that's what's so weird about the movies. You're like, other colonial powers can't rival you. You guys have all the po most powerful technology on the planet. Like, there's no way that like, if a, a bunch of British people show up with a Gatling gun, you guys are just gonna shoot lasers at them and stuff. You yeah. guys have, you know, adamantium and whatever the other, what is that other stuff, whatever the other stuff they've got there. Jay, what do they have? Vibranium. Vibranium. That's it. <laughs> Adamantium was more Tony Stark, but uh, yeah, but they supplied as far if I, if memory serves, if nerd memory serves, they supplied the adamantium that ended up in uh, Captain America's shield. Is that true? 
Oh, it might have. I don't know. Okay, anyway, but, whatever. But, the material but, but is... they also specifically referred not just to colonial powers, but they referred to like other African countries. That's yeah. why that even in Africa, they come pretend to be shepherds so that the. Uh, so I thought it was like they were being racist against it's Africans. It's definitely weird. It's definitely weird. <laughs> and then, of course, they were racist against white, but they wouldn't let the white guy in. He's like, why are you letting a white guy in the yeah, country? Into the country. It's, <laughs> which, uh... which, by the way, and then that's kind of the most extreme Trumpian immigration policy. <laughs> They're going to build literally a, yeah. an invisible, invisible wall, wall around Wakanda. An invisible shield over the whole country. And everybody here is like, you know, we're Wakandans. And like, yeah, go they, Wakanda. They won't let you in. They'll yeah. kill you at the border. <laughs> it's not even a wall. They'll just kill you. So what other Marvel movies? Avatar is not even a movie. I can't talk about uh, that dude, one. Dude, they've got, he's got, and then James Cameron's got a whole bunch of those guys coming out. Ugh. This is a whole bunch. That's crazy. That's still the highest. I think that's still the highest grossing movie. Yeah, and of and all time. I I can't even you you can barely ask anybody. Do you remember the plot of that movie? Like that movie like has not it's inspired the same anybody. Exact plot is Fern Gully. It's the same exact. There's a tree, and the tree is great, and we got to protect it. And then the bad people are coming to take it down, and then that's it. That's the whole plot of the movie. A guy who is a human becomes a one of the Avatar people, and then there's a love story. That's it. And yeah. then there's a love story because, of course, there is. And like, what's crazy about that movie too is like people watched it. This is how this is this is the moment when I was like, okay, we've reached some kind of like new plateau of technology that like we're 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 running into an open field and there are no maps for these territories because like you there were people who were literally killing themselves after seeing that movie because they're like life will never be as good as it is in the movie avatar and they're like how depressing is that like we made a movie so good that like it's it's that actually happened and now here we are in this post that world but but even then like it's not that life is that good in that movie Except for the fact that his senses are enhanced when well, he that's becomes, the thing. and so it's basically that movie. It's basically about a drug experience. Yeah, and he, <laughs> and, and it basically just says, "Boy, if you could have a drug that makes you feel like this, life is going to be great." Yeah, and so it's just a, a let's. It's just a, a pro drug, like a pro hallucinogenic movie. By the way, just like Star Wars is, because yeah. if you think about it, here's. Think about it just realistically. What else does going into <laughs> hyperspace mean? Well, right, right. Well, think about it. Like, Luke is just this white trash farm teenager living in a desert, and he wants to go to, he's just looking at the stars. Boy, I wish I could be in outer space. And and his uncle's like, no, no, Luke, get the hell to work. Like, you can't yeah. even go to college. Yeah, get to work. We're so poor. You can't go to Anchorhead <laughs> to buy some power converters. <laughs> we need you in the fields. Somehow we have, we don't have a cotton gin. We need you yeah. to like pick weeds. Moisture and, farm. There's moisture to be farmed. <laughs> right. And 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 then suddenly this old decrepit homeless guy comes up to him and says, Yeah, you dude, the force. You, yeah, dude, your dad rules the galaxy. <laughs> we gotta go kill him now. And then is and then suddenly from there it's just this drug trip. Like his aunt yeah. and uncle die mysteriously, and he's gotta go into outer space with a bunch of animals yeah. and save the galaxy. Like it's totally a drug he's trip. He's hanging out with a smuggler, uh, a, a a really dirty uh animal, and then two and a homeless guy. Two people who literally don't have souls and a homeless guy. Those are his buddies. Right. And then suddenly he can make things float. Like, this is not a drug trip. It's yeah. totally a drug trip. <laughs> you just found a new five minutes to do on stage later tonight. So uh, I think, by the way, this by itself is just one. This is our water a podcast. And then we should start your podcast. <laughs> yeah, we should probably, this will probably all end up in it. Uh, welcome to Madness Continues. We have James Altucher here today. 
Thank you for having me on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, thanks for doing the podcast, man. Hanging out in your place in in New York, just across the street from Stand Up New York. Uh, You've been how long you've been doing stand up now, James? Uh, It's like it's like you know it's an interesting question because it's about five years, but and people say, oh, that's nothing. You're a fetus in the comedy world. A, I've been public speaking with kind of stand-up ideas for yeah. 20 years. So yeah. you can argue I've been doing corporate gigs for about 20 years. And I've been writing humorously for about 20 years. So yeah, stand-up has been like kind of a tri- a different thing from that, but not entirely different. And so yeah, about five years. And uh, it's been great because the good thing about having a podcast is anytime I have a problem in stand-up comedy, I'll just have some great comedian come on my podcast and I get to ask them whatever questions I want. Like, yeah. what if this happened to you? And it might be the thing that happened to me last night. Yeah. And uh, and then at the same time, I get to go up a lot on stage, not just at Stand Up New York. It dangerous but, depending on the comedian you have on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true because some, some I don't want to, I think comedians in general want to help each other and are, are good guys and and so on. But, you know, there's there's all sorts of characters in any field. And when you have a kind of independent artistic field, like comedy, where which is also a little bit, you know, it's a nighttime lifestyle. It's a little yep. bit crazy. You know, think you know, you you're hanging out a lot in bars and and whatever. You know, some people are a little bit off yeah. the rails, but in, in general, I've had great great comedians on, and I've had a lot of good advice, and it's been fun for me. Like, you know, I get on the stage a lot, not just at Stand Up New York, but all around town and in other towns because I have the benefit of having a large platform from my other activities in life. So. Um, I'm usually able to draw an audience no matter what. And so I've got, I've been able to get a lot of experience fast, faster than someone who normally is in their first five years. Yeah. Well, watching your development over the last just couple of years was kind of amazing because I feel like you just watching your act develop just in the times that I've dropped in and watched you do stand up is I'm like, man, James is really, and I think it's because you do, you have the, you have the platforms. You're able to get on stage a lot. You're able to talk to a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are performing, um, and um and you clearly followed none of Bill's advice, so it's really been working. Um, <laughs> no, I follow Bill's advice <laughs> sometimes. Uh, he's always he, Bill's always a great. Uh, does your audience know Bill? Like I'm sure yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah Bill's always a, Bill's an amazing analyst. He's great at like breaking things down. Yeah. And having an opinion about it, and it's always uh he's helped he's a me good a sounding lot. Board. So yeah, yeah, he's a really good sounding board. Yeah. Um, I would say Bill's good at analyzing kind of the subcomponents of comedy, like. How is your voice doing? What's happening in the crowd? The crowd was spread out. How so did you move the mic stand and how did that affect things? Yeah, he's really, he's like super sensitive to all of that kind yeah. of like stage presence stuff. And I, I would say, and, and you know, like any comedian, like when you're talking to you talking to me or me talking to you, Bill's also good at, you know, oh, maybe you could have tried this punchline. Maybe you could have tried this punchline. You're actually very good, I think, at punchline, you know, coming up with like, here's a premise. Brandon, what's the punchline? And and you riff really well at like punchlines that are good. I think I've used some of your punchlines in the past. Thanks. So. I appreciate that. I've had a few people who uh, like I'll hang out with them and they'll try out stuff and then I'll just be like, you know what you should say is this. One is not to not to toss him out there, but Jeffrey Asmus, who's a comedian who you don't know, he's like very Midwest based, but he had a punchline where he was like talking about how two people appeared. He's like two people died and appeared in the afterlife at the same time. And he was like, it's the Pope and like Queen Elizabeth II or something. And he was like, and he, or whatever names he used, he was like, I just can't, like, I don't know what it is. And I just immediately thought, you know what you should go with this is uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers and Maya Angelou. Like, I'm like, for some reason, the two of them 
And then he's like, because the punchline of his joke was they turn to each other and they're like, should we fuck? Like, it's the afterlife. And I'm like, Fred Rogers and Maya Angelou saying that to each other is a perfect image. Yeah. And like, I appreciate you saying that because I feel pretty good when other comedians end up going like, oh, I should use that. Well, well, I'm way better at doing it like this than I am if I write, if I sit and just write my own stuff down. I'm always like, none of this is funny. <laughs> well, it's hard because when you're writing stuff down, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of question of like, what is comedy? Like, is it just a, a, a you know one or more people just being incredibly silly and stupid on stage to the point where people laugh? Because if you take comedy to an extreme in one direction. It started off as like fart jokes, yeah. and those are funny. Literally, the first joke of all time. I was doing. Yeah. I was. I'm really fascinated about this about like ancient jokes and things. The first joke ever was, there is here is something that has not happened since time immemorial that a wife sat on her husband's lap and passed gas. Yeah. Well, you and know, I'm like, you got everything. You, you know, got uh, wives. You got husbands. You got farts. You got sex. Yeah. You got all of it in one joke. And and you know AJ Jacobs, uh, who's written a bunch of best selling books. He was doing research. He was like, does this joke still hold up? So he had Jim Gaffigan go on stage and do that joke. Oh, my God. And Jim took, put, his, put his own perspective on it, and yeah. it was funny. The audience laughed. That's so Because it's, it's a funny, there's something funny about that. Yeah. Like, and if you had literally, I mean, and think about it. If you're growing up in an age in which your entertainment is like nothing, you got fires, and you got people telling stories you've never heard a joke before in your life, somebody comes up with that. No one, it probably that got passed around for thousands of years, probably. Right. And so, so that's kind of like one extreme, like it's, it's, it's not an art form. It's silly. It's funny. It's like, just let go, let's just go crazy and make people laugh. On the other hand, um, you have people who say, and this is not inaccurate either. Comedy is an art form. It's a way of taking what's important to you and twisting it around. So that it's funny. So you're looking at something in a new light. You know, it's it's Richard Pryor going on stage and talking about growing up with hookers. It's yeah. it's Louis C.K. talking about yeah taking taking his 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 pain of the whatever racial politics and putting it into different yeah yeah. So like, so and I I think people on either side make fun of the other side, but I think it's a little bit of of both. Yeah. And uh, but it's hard though because when you're sitting down writing stuff down, on the one hand you think, well, what's important to me and like what am I thinking about and how can I make it funny? On the other hand. You could also say, well, what's the stupidest, silliest thing I could think of that has nothing to do with anything? Yeah. And you could I try do to balance both. both of those. I think that's such a good point. I try to balance both of those things because what I've been doing lately is writing 10 jokes every morning. I wake up and I'm like, I'm going to write great. 10 jokes. Yeah. Drew Carey did this for a while. For, and he credits and Gary it. Gary Goldman recommends that. Yeah. Gary recommends it too. And um, and I mean, Gary's got so many good, those like Goldman tips or whatever. Yeah. Those are amazing. They're they're so good. And uh, he anyway, I've been doing that. And the kind of stuff that comes out of your head first thing in the morning is just whatever. And I try to make I'm really bad at writing joke structured jokes. Like I have to spend a lot of time focusing on being like, how, OK, this is the setup. This is the punchline. Um, I mean, a lot of my most of my energy is spent in editing. Like I can come up with like, you know, premises and and just and just riff punchlines. But like actually getting them into a subject is is difficult. So when I write those 10 jokes, I try to focus on having them be as jokey as possible, like one-liners. And some of the stuff I've come up with is actually pretty decent. Like I would, you know, a lot of comedians listen to podcasts. So like I would super duper recommend they do it. And it's what's weird. Here's what's weird about it. I decided I was like, I want to try to maybe start a group for doing this. And so I messaged just a couple of people who I know who are really good joke writers. And I was like, do you want to get in this group? And they were all like, no, like, I don't, I don't want to, I'm afraid of how bad they would be if I had to come up but, with 10 but, a day. But see, that's the thing. They should be bad. Yeah. Like you're exercising a muscle. Like when you're, when you first start exercising something, almost everything you do is bad. Yeah. And the whole idea is it's not, it's not like you're going to write 
oh my God, I have 3,650 great jokes for stage. Yeah. At the end of the year, you might have 15 great jokes for the stage. So only one out of, I don't know, 50 jokes yeah. are actually like a decent joke, but you can't get to those 50, 15 until you write hundreds. Well, if you write, if, if you have a 1% success rate, I mean, you've, you've talked about this on your podcast a lot is like, it's, it's not, who's the guy, the baseball dude who, um, who you had on, uh, uh Keith Hernandez. Yeah. Who's the hall of famer. Yeah. And he was talking about the difference between a hall of fame baseball player and a non hall of fame baseball player is like so small in percentages of, of, yeah. but just a, a small difference in at bats can change an entire career. Well, let's, I, that, this, this actually brings me to a, a different point which is, and this is related to comedy, but related to any skill you want to succeed at, it's not enough to be a little bit better than someone at something. If you want to be famous and known and so on, like you have to also be different. Yeah. So you take like, you know, all the best comedians and, or at least the comedians who move up and moved up in ranks the fastest. It wasn't like Richard Pryor was a little bit better than the comedians who came before him. It's that he was completely different. different. He yeah. he said, Changed "I'm uh, of- I'm gonna stop doing setup punchline and I'm gonna talk about growing up with like drug addicts and prostitutes." One of my favorite articles I've ever written on Quora was about why Richard Pryor was so prolific. And I went because talking about the history of comedy is like really it's really fun for me. It's like something to to nerd out about. And I feel like there's so many people who would be like, "I don't give a shit about what Eddie Cantor talked about," but like, you know, he he was. He was so fundamentally different from any comedian who came before him. And everyone, with the exception of maybe Lenny Bruce, I feel like Lenny Bruce and had, had a, a, if Lenny hadn't died, if he, one, if he hadn't gotten in trouble with the law, and two, if he hadn't died when he was like 41, he might have moved into this direction. But Richard Pryor still changed the game so fundamentally that every comedian who came after him has only emulated what he's done. Like yeah. it's it's never gone back to what it was before Richard Pryor. Like it's never gone back to Henny Youngman or Shaka Green or like. Any you can argue Rodney things. Dangerfield. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Who who's great by the way? Like his 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 one liners are to be studied as a as for joke structure. Yeah, and they're so tight and everything. But that's like a different. That was like a different branch of yeah. comedy. I would just say like you know anybody who's famous now from you know Chappelle to Louis C.K. to uh, Bill Burr to just anybody you just name it. He have all more or less emulated his his style. Yeah, and and I think also emulated they've fallen the, into the groove that he created, and, and they emulated even more closely the, the arc of his career, where you start off trying to be like, okay, this is traditional stand up. I'm gonna now move my thoughts and thinking and writing into that very strict structure of you know setup, punchline, act out, absurdism, callback, and that's a joke. And you see that with like Louis the first two-thirds of Louis C.K.'s career, for instance, he's mostly an absurdist, and then suddenly he gets on stage and he says, you know what? My daughter's an asshole. Yeah. And then he starts <laughs> talking about his personal life, and then later he gets divorced, and he's like, I'm, like, fat and ugly, and, like, this, yeah. this is what my dates are like, like. Deeply personal. Yeah. And it's like, because that's the thing that was so fascinating about him was that nobody else could have done Richard Pryor's bit. So, like, when you say it's not just to be good, you have to be different. It, this I've been thinking about this a lot lately because there's, if you, any prior bit, could have there okay even Rodney Dangerfield who did not do the same t- style of humor as Richard Pryor you could have not given his jokes to anyone else the joke might have worked right. but it would not have worked in the way that it worked with Rodney right that he no one else could do what he was doing no one else could do what Pryor was doing no one else can do what Chris Rock is doing no one else can do what Chappelle is doing and that's the level that you have to be at if you want to be it's not just good enough that you have jokes that are good 
or like it's not just good, good enough that you're effective at the thing you do. You have to be able to do it in a way that no one else can do it. Right. I think, and that, that's my point. Like the average person on the street can't, and, I, and I, I, I don't mean to say the average person, but basically people in general can't tell the difference. If you have two comedians and one's 10% or even 50% better than the other, the average person on the street is not going to know. Yeah. If you have two professional tennis players, one is the number one tennis player in the world. The other is the number 1,000 tennis player in the world. And you watch them both playing a match against one of their peers. You're not going to be able to tell which tennis player was better, even though one is the best in the world. Or the other is number 1,000. Yeah. You know, if you're the average person on the street, it's the same thing with comedy. But if someone's different, you're going to be able to say, oh, this guy is noticeably. Yeah. He's doing something I've never seen. The paddle before. upside down. Right. <laughs> or the racket upside down. Right. And so Asian style. It's like I it's like I had um, I had on a comedian on my podcast a few weeks ago, Chris Turner, young guy, 27 years old. He um, uh, but he's he's passed everywhere. He's amazing. He's brilliant. He does stand up and he even admits like the stand up is what yeah. it is. And then at the end of his act, he goes around the audience, finds five completely random words. And then all of a sudden he does this amazing freestyle rap using those words. And it's amazingly intelligent. He ties them all together. It's He's thinking on the fly. He's a genius. And he made his comedy different. So he gets passed at every club in the world yes. on TV. No one else just, can do that. Yeah, he gets YouTube videos, get millions of views. So, if, But if you're just telling like, you know, I was on the subway the other day and on my Tinder date, it, no one no one cares. Ugh, I wish I, that's what I got to find about myself is like, what the hell can I do that nobody else can do? And uh, I think it's a hard thing because- yeah. Like I was writing. Well, that's why there's so few people who get famous. Yeah. And like I was, I mean, I'll take this from a different angle. Like I was writing professionally for 10 years. So I started writing in the 90s, but around 2002 was my first published article. And 2004 was my first book. And I was writing about kind of business. And I had a u unique voice in kind of the finance business space. But then suddenly around 2010, my writing changed and I would write. I went broke and this is what happened. And nobody was doing that then. Now it's a lot of people are doing it. But at the time, everyone was calling me like, are you about to kill yourself? Or do you have, <laughs> do you have, did you have a stroke? Like one CEO yeah. of a major company asked me to lunch. It's like, I heard you had a stroke. Like she heard it. Like people were talking about it. Like I heard you had a stroke. Are you so okay? And, uh, and it's cause I was writing something very different that a lot of people that who had never been able to admit these things were looking at my writing and saying, well, he admitted it and he is fine and maybe I could. So I was actually helping a lot of people, but, but being different, having a very unique voice, it got to the point where people could say, I could read the first paragraph of something and tell you if James Altucher wrote it. And I'm not bragging, like this is what people would say. And that helped me. That helped the next few books I wrote became bestsellers. And now it's kind of, I feel like you created that trend because now it's like fetishized. Right. Like I, years I later, people I, are like taught constantly like, I failed a million times. Right. And I, I call it failure porn. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I was, <laughs> I was once, you know, considering suicide and I was a drug addict. Like I see this now in every, I, that, that every kind of business self-help book sort of either starts like that or starts in a more Malcolm Gladwell way. Like Charles Darwin was trying to figure out what to do. And you know, oh so it's my God. Yeah. Or then there's like a whole bunch Malcolm Gladwell also did. And it's funny that Malcolm Gladwell is like almost your like evil twin or something. Yeah. Like there's like some kind of weird flow. You guys but both have the completely hair different thing. angle of writing. Yeah. Totally different angle of writing. Same hairstyle. But um, the I'm which, I can't which, by the way, the he changed, you know, he kind of spiked his hair out to get more views. Yeah. You know, because he, he people would look at him and be like, what is this guy about to say? But it's funny because like even him, 
uh, he started this whole trend of people doing that where they would be like, and like, like Charles Duhigg, I think, who's yeah. a great writer and I yeah. really like, also kind of falls into this category where it's like, let me tell you about all this massive amount of like science to back up, but he'll start with like a question of like, it's 2003 and there's a how do you blah, blah, blah. And then it's like guides this whole science process. And it's funny because it's an interesting style of writing, but like it totally is like a trope now that like everybody writes in this way. Right. And so the cha my challenge is and it's similar to the challenge of, you know, finding what your voice is as a comedian. My challenge is I had a voice from like 2010 to 2019, but it's so it got it, at, at first I was the only voice in that category, which is kind of like uh, this reality business self-help i'll call it like this this dirty business this dirty realist business self-help and now i feel like that category is just glutted yeah and so now how do you evolve with yeah it? what's the voice because people do relate to you know it's a very much the arc of the hero like oh i had this failure after some success i'm i'm at bottom and now i've got the call to action is i've got to rise up and find new friends and have more and more problems until yeah. finally i have success again and come back to tell the story i mean story. that's exactly you just described Ray dalio's principles i mean yeah. he wrote that's exactly like all these people talk about that now yeah and 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 so now what's a new what's what's happened to me and what's a new voice that's the arc of the story and as you grow older some things you can't talk about some things are personal some things are not and so this is a big challenge for me as i'm writing my next book which is you know, what's as intense a voice? Cause I can't tell, I don't even want to tell that story again. Too many people have repeated. It. I have to sort of create a genre again, which is very difficult. It's hard enough to create one. Um, and, but it's the same thing with comedy. Like when I started doing stand-up comedy, I felt like, okay, I need to do a, a, a setup punchline, you yeah. know, uh, act out, uh, absurdist callback, blah, blah, blah. And, and I would start writing these jokes that weren't that much different than, just fictional stand-up comedy jokes. When I had this voice and I've had tons of experiences, like here I am talking about, you know, some dumb, stupid thing when I, I could also be talking about the time I met the biggest con man of all time, Bernie Madoff, or I could be talking about my interactions with Yasser Arafat or yeah. just story after story after story. But, you know, it's, it's, you can't quite translate those directly to comedy. I don't know. It's this process I'm still going through. Yeah. Well, it's I, how do you? So this is interesting me is what if we, if we go back to when you're and I know you've talked about this before, but but you're on my podcast now and I want to talk about it. Um, Let's go for it. You go back to when you're writing all through this period of time. You had a you had a body of work that finally led to like this one kind of thing of success. It's funny because I think about this a lot where you've and it, again, like you've talked about on your podcast. It's not about quality. It's about quantity. And even Charles Duhigg in his book, uh, Faster, Better, Smarter, talks about this. Where he's like, you're. If you look at creative, the creative process, it's not really about. There's no special. No one goes into a room. No one does nothing and then goes into a room and then just magically creates this genius work. Right. They create a ridiculous amount of output, and some of those things are hits. Right. Rid ridiculous amount. Like take uh, Picasso as an example. Not that I'm comparing myself to him, but just to what you said. No, but I would uh, appreciate it if you compared me to him. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, Picasso created 50,000 works of art in his life, and yet the average person on the street, well, I might, I probably can't even name any of them, but let's say an art, you know, someone who follows the art world could probably name three to 10 of Picasso's works out of 50,000 over a 60-year career. Yeah. So, and it's the same thing with, with, with writing. Like, I would say from... 
I don't know, from 1991 to, to now, I've written every single day. I've probably created tens of thousands of, or at least 10,000 articles and stories. And, you know, maybe again, 10 to 50 of them might be good. And, uh, you know, you, there's two benefits to quality. One is that ratio holds where if you create 10,000 things, you know, 10 might be good. The other thing about quality is that, uh, you need practice. You need, you, if you're not going to just go into a gym and be like ripped the first time you got to go there every single day for, for months and, and, you know, do your repetitions and increase the weights and set more challenges for yourself. And, and so that's, there's those two benefits of qualities that you exercise this muscle of creativity that you're focused on, whether it's writing or comedy or, or painting or whatever. And through that exercise, you're going to accidentally come up with works that other people also love. And you can say those were your successes, by the way, some of my most popular articles are not my favorites. My favorites tend to be a little bit more literary and not have any value whatsoever to anybody else. Whereas people kind of like the articles that give them very direct advice. Yeah, uh, it's weird. I've noticed that same thing on, you know, most of the writing that I've done. I got into the habit of writing two, one to two answers a day on Quora. Just because it's a great, yeah. it's like a writing prompt and you can just kind of go for it, um, which has been pretty cool. And I've noticed also that my favorite, like I talk, talk about the Richard Pryor one, that might be my favorite article I've written on Quora which is like, I researched it. I like, and I really felt proud of it. I was like, this is actually, I, cause I actually know this. Nobody else is talking about this on Quora and it's gotten like a th- couple thousand reads. And, and, and I, and I'll break that down what you just said. Like, and I haven't read the article. I will, but, um, that was probably something where like inside of you, there was some angst, like no one's getting this right. Like, uh, I yeah. see something amazing that happened. That's inspiring to me that there's that people should know about and you spewed it out because it comes from this deeper place inside of you. It's not like, Oh, I need to write about, you know, uh, why the earth is not flat or whatever. It's not like something where it's just on the because surface of your brain that, you know, something and you write down, it's one, two, three, four, five. It's like, Oh, you, you have, there's a story there. Richard Pryor woke up one day and decided to change his life. Yeah. And then you just go. Yeah. And, uh, and those I think are great like often you can write about yourself or you can write about others. And I think those are great articles about others where you're taking something, but it's still about you. This is the parts of Richard Pryor's story that people need to know because it's changed my life knowing this story. And so I bet you that's where it came from. And that's why it's good because it comes from this deeper place inside of you. Yeah. And I had links to all these other stand-up comics and like, like I was saying, like Henny Youngman and, and, um, Jack Benny and just all these other guys who even from that era, like Jay Leno, just all these people and like where Richard fit in with this and why that was like important and relevant. Right. And I bet you that's a great article because, again, people are going to read that they're not going to even have to know about the history of comedy because you're going to your passion is going to come out in the article and reflect it for them. And what's really what's the real story there is how that's. And again, I'm guessing because I haven't read it. The real story there is how it changed you yeah. and changed your perspective. Like, I'll tell you one story that I wrote about Dave Chappelle. And again, it's not like, oh, a homework assignment. Like, tell a story about Dave Chappelle. Here's one. Uh, uh, this is like, I read this anecdote about him and it was like, okay, this relates to everything I've learned my whole life. And now it applies to something I'm passionate about, which is comedy. But like, this is a few years ago, Dave Chappelle shows up randomly at this comedy club, let's say in Denver. I don't know where it was, but let's say in Denver. He just shows up randomly and he performs for like an hour. 
And then everybody, he was, all the comedians, they all go out to a bar afterwards. Dave Chappelle's having a fun time. And then one of the comedians says, let's go to this, it's one in the morning, let's go to this party. I know that's after party, we should all go to. And Dave Chappelle's like, nah, nah, man, let's go back to the club. Like, uh, there's one more show. There's the 1 a.m. show. And everybody's like, Dave, there's only going to be like five people, people in the audience. And Dave Chappelle says, what would you rather, who, what's going to make you a better comedian? Going to that party or going to that yeah. club at one in the morning and telling a bunch of jokes to five strangers. Yeah. And so they go back to the club and Dave went on for like two hours and blew them all away. And that's such a great anecdote about what separates greatness. It's not even about comedy. It's what separates greatness from mediocrity. Yeah. And that's why he's great. And that was so inspirational to me. And it comes from a deeper part. Like, I want to be great. So this is the thing I'm learning from today. And when you when your inspiration is really recognizing when some idea is coming from a slightly deeper core running inside of you and then translating that to the outside world. That's inspiration, but it's also a skill to recognize, oh, inspiration's happening. It's not like you're struck by a lightning bolt that tells you this is inspiration. You have to build, you have to exercise that inspiration muscle so you recognize that that feeling somehow that you're having in your chest and your stomach. Oh, I gotta, I gotta write about this. This is important. And then like with you with Richard Pryor, you probably had that same kind of feeling where you're like, oh, this is something, there's something I'm giving birth to something here. I can't, yeah. I can't crush it down. I gotta, I can't just go to the party. I gotta sit down and write this. That's very eloquent. I think that, well, this is why it's important to do your 10 ideas a day thing. Because yeah. it's like, you'll know when you get a good one, you'll something inside of you will go like, oh shit, that's actually a pretty good idea. And then you, if you don't have that muscle, like you're saying, if you don't have that, mu you know, one of the things, and it is like a muscle because one, totally of, a muscle. one of the things I've learned about, I, I've done, I did mixed martial arts for years um, and had some amateur fights. And then I did, uh, I switched to doing CrossFit um, because I'm a douchebag, but I decided to switch to doing CrossFit. And when you're doing like Olympic lifts or when you're doing like, you know, martial arts moves or something, there's a feeling you get when you do the move right, where you just go, oh, I just nailed that. And then that's what gives you, that's why they have you train with lighter weights first is because when you start feeling like, oh, this is how I do a power clean, or that's why you do it slowly first when you're doing, you know, martial arts moves just to break it down is because you're like, oh, this is what this should feel like. And then so yeah. when you start doing it quickly or when you do it with heavier weight, you know that that feeling is there. So it, exercising by doing like 10 ideas a day or like 10 jokes a day or something not only are you creating more material that you can then use in the world, but you're also exercising this part of you that goes like, oh, this is what it feels like when I know I write a really good joke. Like I wrote one the other day that I was, um, I was at my girlfriend's uh, office and I gave this to, I just said it. I wrote it the day before and I thought, oh, this is a pretty good joke. And then I said it at her office randomly to a bunch of people and they all just lost it. They thought it was so funny. And the joke was basically like, isn't it weird that and it's probably going to totally fall flat now that I've built it up like this. But the joke was like, isn't it weird that an alien from another planet ha hasn't visited us who can fly and has super strength and shoot lasers out of his eyes to make himself the arch nemesis of Jeff Bezos? Oh, you know what? I saw you. <laughs> did you do this on Twitter? I saw this or on Facebook. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so because also Jeff Bezos kind of looks like Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor. So, <laughs> and I, I thought that was genius. I thought that was a great line. Yeah. And uh, uh, that, that, that is a good line. And it's, and it's interesting because it also, you know, right now in today's day and age, it brings up these, this, these, this sort of quasi-anger politicians are stirring about billionaires and income inequality and addresses all that. Yeah. Plus, you know, 
by the way, we just had on TV Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is, yeah. you know, all the Supermans and Lex Luthers on, in all the multiverse. And so there's all these cultural yeah. things this that are happening Lex right Luther now. In this that universe. It yeah, it's so funny. I think I think that Jeff Bezos is so selfish because he's got one hundred and eighty nine billion dollars and he's denying one hundred and eighty eight other people from being billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I think a lot about this stuff because I just put together all the transcripts of my interviews with billionaires and I wrote some intros and it became a book, Think Like a Billionaire. And uh, and I kind of really think about this because it's so topical now. What, what you know, are billionaires salvage? Are they greedy? Is there some sort of, you know, income inequality that they're responsible for? There's clearly income inequality, but are the billionaires responsible? And I think it's an unknown, but... It's also interesting to say what what there's a lot of things that Jeff Bezos did along the way that are worth looking at and learning from. And yeah. I think that's interesting, too. I think it's I actually think moralizing it, it as a lot of people in the left does. And even I do, admittedly, is actually detrimental to helping pragmatically the situation of inequality. I agree. Like you don't see, and again, I'll use Andrew Yang. You don't see Andrew Yang saying there shouldn't be billionaires, um, but you do see him coming up with a solution, which is, hey, if we do this, this, and this to generate revenues for the government, we can afford to send a thousand dollars a month to everybody, so people who are in transitions in their lives can take a step back and figure out what to do. And then he also has a solution for student loan debt: work yep. for ten years for the government and give ten percent of your income each year, and your student loan debt's free. I think that I think that this is part of the reason why Bernie Sanders is partially uh, difficult as a presidential candidate is because I think that he's Jewish. Yeah, he's, he's Jewish. <laughs> you beat me to the punch. That's exactly right. Um, and, no, because he and and slightly Elizabeth Warren also is because I feel like there is a strong moral frame to what they're talking about publicly, and I think that that is. I think that there's a lot of people like, let me give you an example. Like my parents are like a great example of this. My, like my dad, my dad's pretty well off. He's, he, you know, had a whole career at the senior director level at Pfizer and environmental and was responsible for like lots so you're of coming from stuff. white privilege. I'm coming from you the whitest of privilege anymore. Translucent privilege. Um, I mean like my grandparents, uh, were members of Detroit country clubs and like, I didn't realize until I got older that I was like, Oh, my dad's side. Like we went, we had like, Christmas with like Bill Ford Jr.'s kids at like the country club. And then like three days later, I'd have like Christmas at my mom's side of the family and my uncle Bill would be like, this is my buddy James who just got out of jail. And like that, it just was a very different, I like a very experience with a whole different sets of people when I was younger. Um, not that, that my white, my, my mom's family's white trash, but there are members of them who are definitely white trash. And uh, and I love them. I think white trash people, people forget about this. I talk with Bill about this a lot, that I'm like, white trash people are great. The problem is that you think that all white trash people are crackers, and it's not the same thing. No, and also, by the way, some great classic books in the past few years, the most uh, significant one being The Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Uh, Vance, I think. Yeah. Um, is a great book about kind of the, the white trash phenomenon. It's beautiful. Um, anyway, where was I going with all this oh, crap? You, you, uh, you, you, your uncle, your 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 uh, you know, people think white oh, trash oh, are crackers. Oh, yeah. So, so no. So anyway, so the point is, is that like my dad, when my dad starts hearing like Bernie Sanders and he's like, you are going to redistribution of wealth and like all this stuff or like whatever he's saying, like my dad feels like weirdly threatened, like he's coming for his stuff. And I'm like, dad, he's not talking about you. Like you don't have a billion dollars. Like it's a different, totally different thing. 
But that moral frame feels so strange. Like if he just talked about it pragmatically, like I think Andrew Yang is is doing, it, yeah. like if we just talked about the problem in itself and didn't try to apply any moral language to it, it would it would probably draw people who are otherwise put off from it. Yeah. Because I feel like you, if you talk to, and I know you do, but like if you talk to anybody who's really truly a member of the one or point one or point oh one percent, they'll agree with you that you're like, yeah, inequality is a really big problem. But like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. Like, I don't think Jeff Bezos has any better idea of how it's going to be handled than anybody else. Yeah, no, I think, and I don't even know if they would put it in that in those terms. I think they would say, let's find out solutions that help everybody. Yeah. So we want to create prosperity for everyone. We want to create better health care for everyone. No one denies. Nobody wants income inequality. Nobody yeah. wants like poor people to be poor and rich people to be richer. Nobody, yeah. Zero people want that. And we want poverty in general to rise. We want uh, I mean, the, the, the incomes. Of, I know what of, you meant. Yeah. yeah. And we want healthcare in general to rise. We want less disease. We want less infant mortality. We want better education. And that's what's been happening in the world, by the way. Like, so but people look at who's the poorest person in the world and who's the richest. Oh, that's getting wider. So yeah. that must mean something. Well, we just, and the problem also is like, uh, I just watched the BBC's Dracula. And in the final episode, he he's in modern times. And he was under, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but like he is underwater for like 125 years and then comes out and now he's in modern day Britain. And he's like, what the, and everything is like strange to him and all this stuff. Yeah, it was kind of neat. And one of the things he says, he goes to this like super trashy trailer park house and he's like, this is the most, he's like, I I know kings who don't have luxury like this. Like you have a, you have a, a, a moving painting that shows you everything on the planet and like, it's and it's it's one thing to think about like like Henry VIII owned something like, uh, like in his entire wealth owned only something like five thousand objects, and the average person owns like like twice that number. I know, and don't don't make me feel bad because obviously we're sitting in a room where that where I have five thousand <laughs> objects, but it's because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blame anyone. But for for a long time, I only had fifteen objects. I lived in Airbnbs in a carry on bag. I think when I when I first met Bill, I might have, oh, no, yeah, no, were, I'd already, I had just moved into an apartment for the first time in years. And I, uh, but for years, all I did was I, I was, for whatever reason, terrified of owning anything. And I was giving all my money appropriately to my ex and my kids and supporting them. And I was just living out of Airbnbs where you don't have to buy any objects because the towels are there, the sheets are there, the plates are there. And I would, I, if I ever bought a T-shirt, I would have to throw out a T-shirt. I had like two T-shirts, two pairs of pants, a button-down shirt, and a computer. And that's what I lived out of for like three years. And it was a great period of my life because it put up, made this discipline where I realized I literally do not need anything yeah. to be as happy as possible. Essentialism. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, but some people feel differently. Like my wife has lived all, all over the world and when we got married and moved in, she's collected objects from every country she's lived in and now they're all here, but it's a weird thing. And, and I will say though, still, we don't go out to stores. I don't, I don't think since we've been married, we've gone out to a store and bought anything. Like yeah. we just have everything she moved in with. Yeah. And well, I, I mean like, and I don't, I don't think that there's, I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is like, I don't think there's anything wrong with having that many objects. I think that it's, I think, it, I think the problem is when people 
begin to think that that's the only thing that could make them yeah. happy. Or but, that's the way to measure society is who is that, oh, the the bottom 1% has this many objects and the top 1% has this many objects, yeah. so something's wrong. Yeah, and like, the but but to like the, the point, the, the deeper point that I guess I was for reflecting on is that like the common, like, like miracles have become commonplace. It's like that Louis C.K. joke where he's like, are you up in the sky like a fucking miracle? Like for no yeah. one in the history of the planet. And you're like, then the Wi-Fi goes out and you're like, this is bullshit. And you're like, it's, it's, you know, you you have a phone that gives you access to everything in the internet. You can call everyone you know from all time. Literally no one in the history of the planet except the last few years has been able to do that. And that's commonplace. So like, you know, just to bring this full circle, we're talking about, you know, the rise of Skywalker and the movie was a dumpster fire. If you had seen that, even as uh, 30, 40 years ago, not even that long ago, but infinite, but infinitely in time before that, it would literally be the most entertaining thing you'd ever, anyone had ever seen ever. Like, and it, it, right. it wouldn't have mattered to them that it wasn't a plot or they couldn't follow things. They just, the visual images alone would have like blown their minds. Right. That's true. And yet here we are being like, this is bullshit. Well, and the other thing is too, like, you know, every, like, like you say, someone making, you know, I, I remember when I first made an income in my life and suddenly I could buy a VCR back. This is back in the nineties. It was VCRs existed. And, <laughs> but you would think about it. Like I, I, I felt like wealth was I could buy a VCR without thinking about it. And, you know, so your perceptions of what you need also are different. And I do think it's, you know, I'm older now and I've had, fortunately, I fortunately I've stopped going broke repeatedly and I've, <laughs> I'm knocking on wood cause I could go, I could easily go broke again. But you realize too, like, Oh, if I'm a patron of someone's, you know, on Patreon of someone's podcast for $500 a month, that's life changing to them in some cases uh, and and nothing to me. Yeah. So it And it, if you're listening, <laughs> send me your pockets. But but like the good the good thing is is that uh uh people should with a little bit more money do things that help people. You don't always have to donate to the American Cancer Foundation. You could find good quality podcasts or artistic endeavors or startups that you could put a little bit of money in and that makes a big difference to them and again it's not as much a difference to you hopefully but i i, I think it's a great sentiment i feel like uh you, you know you remember i think you remember saint james jackson the yeah yeah comedian. yeah he um we met in chicago when you guys had me at the laugh factory that, in 2017 yeah yeah, uh, yeah yeah december 2017 yeah for um Jesus, that was two years ago now. Yeah. That's uh yeah, for the Young Hustle show. He um I remember one day he asked me for like, he was like, Man, I'm trying to apply to these like uh try to these comedy f festivals. You know, he's like, Do you is there any way I could like borrow some money for a little bit, Lemon? And I just like gave him a hundred bucks and he applied to like all these festivals. And they like totally changed his life. And a hundred dollars to me at the time was like not a big deal at all. So it's exactly that kind of thing. We're just like support, you know, people doing something or even with like time, energy, reshares, whatever, like the number of people who, if you're listening to this, listen to this podcast and then like, don't reshare it, but are like, this is great. Or like make a comment, like rate it, share it, make a comment, like, and subscribe, hit that like button, hit that subscribe, button, all that sort of stuff. It actually does make a difference to the people doing that. Stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think people feel like, no, 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 I got to keep working. I got to keep working. I got to keep working and hustling. I got to keep hustling. And then when I'm really rich, then I'm going to donate to charity and philanthropy, like, which is such a, a stupid philosophy. Like you're going to work till you're 60 years old, make whatever it is, your number, and then just die giving it all back to, to <laughs> charity, which is, which is fine. Like it'll help people. But like, why'd you work so hard in a 
first place? Why couldn't you have just started working for charities or raise money? Yeah, you know, you there's really so many other things you could have done to create yeah. impact in life. That's exactly, and I feel like that's probably why everybody wants to be a vlogger or like a YouTube star now in Gen Z. is because they're like, I'm just going to get a ton of attention. Then I'm going to go do something meaningful. Yeah. And then you can just do something meaningful from the beginning or get right into something. Like there doesn't have to be a lot of like ground clearing around most of the things that you're trying to do. I just, part of the reason I started this podcast was um, John Corcoran, um, who I think you might know, um, I, I, mutual friends with, uh, with um, Jordan Harbinger. Okay. Um, he, uh, he talked me into doing it cause he was like, he's like, why would you wait for an opportunity to start doing it? And if you want to have conversations with people just do it. And it's been one of the smartest ideas yeah. anybody's given me. Yeah. Like, no, that's, everybody is going to tell you can't, you can't do this, Brandon. You don't, you don't know anybody. You don't have the yeah. Twitter followers. Like how are you going to get so-and-so on your podcast? Everyone's going to tell you, you can't, and then you just have to do it and experiment like to do a podcast, a, a basic podcast. You need the recorder on your iPhone, an account at Libsyn, which costs like nothing, and upload. Yeah. Audio. Do I, I remember my very first podcast, or or alongside my very first podcast, I did one with my uh, ex-wife, and in a car we would just talk while driving, and then we would upload that, and that was that podcast was called Ask Altitude. It was different than the James Altitude show, and that got almost as many downloads as the James Altitude show. Yeah. Like, just go ahead and do things, and if it doesn't work, okay, it's an experiment. Do the next thing. I always say, I have this rule I call the 10,000 experiment rule, which is against the 10,000 hour rule. 10,000 hour rule says if you do something for 10,000 hours, You'll you're going to be among also. the best yeah. in the world. But my view is that's only good for repetitive things like playing the violin or hitting a baseball or whatever. But for something like comedy or, or real art or even, you know, career, ex if you do 10,000 experiments and define experiment as it's something... Something I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm going to try some simple thing that's not going to blow up the lab, but simple enough where I could learn something. And by the way, there's a good chance if I don't know it, nobody else knows it because I'm an expert in, or I read in the field. And if you do 10,000 experiments and learn from each one, regardless of failure or success, A, you're going to have a whole bunch of successes in the process, and B, by the time you do 10,000 experiments, you probably will be the best in the world yeah. at whatever you're experimenting in. And that might be as broad as career or it might be as narrow as podcasting or comedy or writing or whatever but that mentality is the is the way to think like i'm sure in comedy you've tried many different styles many different things many different types of jokes mostly i just say the n-word a lot <laughs> well that's an experiment too and you see i i uh, seeing so many comedians on a stand-up comedy club you see what happens to those people versus other people but uh look when i was first starting i did an experiment i went on the subway and uh yeah, tried doing stand-up like comedy on the subway to tighten up my one-liners Horrible experiment in terms of how it felt, but it was an experiment. Yeah, and, and now you got that, you know, that's in your brain. That's informing the rest of your comedy. Right, and so A, it gives me, it, it, maybe it did make me a little better at tightening one-liners because you have one second to entertain people, and B, it's a story I could tell forever. Yeah. So there's all these benefits of experimenting, even if it was a failure. There's, so, there's two things I want to talk about uh, because I know our time is kind of limited. I know you got a bunch of other stuff to do today, I think. It's uh, like 11 o'clock right now. No, I'm... I'm good. Are you we good? Can keep, we can keep on talking. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Um, so, all right. So here's what I wanted to, I wanted to shift into because I had two ideas. Um, one, I wanted to say, I wrote you that email. I really, I credit, uh, I listened to you on Jordan's show and I saw your TED talk and I was in a pretty bad place in my life and the listeners will be aware of this because I've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, but I was basically like homeless for a while. So I was like, yeah, doing I know what, you, uh, <laughs> yeah. you sent me that email. So after, 
after your relatives were hanging out with the Fords, you were living yeah. in a van in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, it was a tr- yeah, it was a truck in Boulder, Colorado. But <laughs> but it was definitely it was not a great situation. It was after my uh, it was after a family tragedy, and I think I kind of just <clears throat> just checked out of life for a while. I think part of it was there was a part of me that was like, if the world is this cruel to someone who's really wonderful, then I don't think I want a part of it. And that kind of just caused me to like just, you know, um, just check out really. But I remember, I think, feeling like I wanted to feel like the universe was choosing me for something. And that's why I think your book was so powerful and your message was so powerful because it was like, oh, nobody's going to do that's never going to you could be waiting on that your entire life and it will never arrive. And you really have. And it's what's funny about it is that I think that a lot of people the choose yourself message a lot of people can think about as like this, oh, that's like a selfish, you're Yes, I like, got that criticism. But what's weird about it is that it's really not, that if you believe that being your best self is a, and, and you know, I had come from, and I think this is why this resonated with me, I had come from this background of like the mythopoetic men's movement, and I'd gone through like um, the Mankind Project and like a whole bunch of other stuff. And the message that they say is when you do your work, when you work on yourself and you do your work, you're doing work for other men too. So it's like when you handle your shit, you're helping other people by proxy help do their shit. Totally. And that was the entire point is that what's better for the world? You being physically healthy or you being sick in bed? What's better for the world? You being creative or you being having no ideas whatsoever? Yeah. What's better for the world? You being uh, spiritual for yourself or you being not spiritual so, at all? So the Mankind Project's number one rule is take care of yourself first because no one else is going to, you are be, you are going to be a burden on others if you do not take responsibility for yourself first, which I think is what your message is. And that concept of like choosing yourself, I feel like that really hit me pretty hard when I was in a pretty dark place because I was like, oh, nobody's going to do this. Like I'm going to be waiting my whole life to like for something like this to arrive. Right. And it was like really big. So I want to I want to thank you for that and just say that that was like a big I felt like that was very relevant. And it's a message I think a lot of people sort of need. I, I, I appreciate that because you're right. Like a lot of criticism was sounds like a selfish title and people wouldn't read the book. And then but but then you look at like, what's the alternative? You know, or if, if you don't choose yourself, are you are you saying you want other people to choose you? Are you saying you should choose others before yourself, which yeah. eventually you'll, your energy will be depleted and you won't be able to help others. Yeah. You know, whenever I've been able to successfully choose myself, I've been able to help so many people and rise up so many of the people around me. It's it's been amazing. It's amazing how many people you could help when you choose yourself. Yeah. And I think that there's two thoughts that come to mind. I think the the first is that I think of like my mother when I was a, when I was a kid she would constantly be like, and my mother's an amazing woman. Like she's constantly giving, she's constantly helping other people, but she would wear herself down to a point where it was like, she just didn't have anything to give anymore. You know, like you're not, if you're not taking care of yourself, then this actually, it, it, it you can't help anyone. You can't do any of those things, which is basically what you just said. Right. Like what if all, everybody in your life was calling you every day and they're complaining and they're whining and they're yeah. they're whining about other people. We're talking and, about Bill <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And 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 they're asking you for money or they're asking you for your Sorry, time Bill. and they and they just they they they're, they're just you know there's there's a lot of different types of toxic people but you're only going to and people say well you can't abandon them they need your help but you still have to take care of yourself because they will emotions and feelings and opinions are like you know are go viral and you'll get infected with their diseases emotional or mental or whatever i'm not saying you totally abandon them but you have to kind of every day prune toxicity and add 
positive people in your life so that you can have the right, you know, balance to help the people around you. If you just kind of give of yourself, eventually you give all of yourself away. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. I, I think that the, the other thing that I want to caveat this with is like it, there will never be a situation in which it is a certain kind of um, what do I want to say? Like uh, like pride or like lack of vulnerability for somebody to think I want to be so choosable, so undeniably choosable by everybody that only people will ever accept me for this thing. Meaning like I will never be in a situation such that someone will say, no, I, I'm not going to choose you for whatever. And, and I, it's funny because I did this, I just caught, I was just on a podcast in Chicago like a month ago called, uh, nobody likes you with, <laughs> with Dale McPeak, which uh, I was love like these titles like that. Like nobody likes you or uh, there's another one. My, my wife hates me, Rich Voss and yeah. Bonnie McFarlane, uh, or, you know, girls who, you know, whatever, uh, uh, all these like cr creative titles. I'm just the James Altucher show. show so yeah. boring. So nobody likes you is like a podcast where like people it's like about the Chicago comedy scene is for people who other people don't like, and they want it. And it gives an opportunity for the person who's not like to like confront that, that criticism. And so people can submit questions uh, like, anonymously. So I got asked to be on the podcast. And what was kind of funny about it is two things. One, my name got submitted like more than other than like anybody else, but also they had more people write in to be like why is this guy on your show? Like do people not like this guy? So it was weird. Like it was a very strange sort of mix of things, but the reason I bring this up is because one of the criticisms that came out was they were like, you know, how come Brendan thinks that he can do his own like comedy specials or go to Edinburgh just like he he just you know does this kind of stuff like doesn't does like what is he like shouldn't he be like getting like bona fide more bona fides in the stand-up world and what occurs to me is i'm like that will always be the case man like it will always be the case like i did those things because i just wanted to do them and because i decided no i was like i'm not gonna wait for somebody to give me the opportunity to well, do this right so so interesting so so choose yourself could be like like you were saying earlier it could be about developing your your inner you know health and this and that but also there's a very practical thing. Let's say you want to do a radio show. So you wrote to Sirius XM, you wrote to local radio, you wrote to, I don't know, Pandora, whatever. And they all said, Brandon, Brendan, we don't like you. We don't, we, we don't want you to do a radio show. Okay. Now you can choose yourself. You, you do a podcast. We're sitting here with a, basically a tape recorder. We're recording it and we're going to upload this to some cloud and it's going to be a podcast. Boom. You have a radio show. Let's say you wanted to publish a book. Uh, 20 publishers reject you. No problem. You write the book. You can upload it to Amazon or wherever you want. And boom, you have a book. And it, by the way, it looks like just, it looks like any other book. No one's ever going to ask you, well, who published your book? No one ever asked that. Yeah. You have a book on Amazon <laughs> and it's, and it's, and people think, well, it's just an ebook. No, you can make it a paperback. You can make it a hardcover. You can make it an audiobook. It's yeah. all, you can Go upload all of You can get a hardcover. And let's say a comedy special. Somebody says, um, well, I have a Netflix special, blah, blah, blah. And let's say Netflix says, uh, Brendan, you're, we don't want you to, we're not going to choose you for a Netflix special. No problem. You could do an hour at the Laugh Factory and you could videotape it and you could upload it to Amazon. Now you have an, you could say, well, yeah, my Netflix special, my, my comedy special is on Amazon Prime. Yeah. No one's going to say, well, did they pick you or did you upload it? And by the way, when they then search for comedy specials, your comedy special is going to show up right next to Dave Chappelle's. No one's going to be able to tell the difference. Yeah. Like that. People don't even know that about Amazon. Not only can you self-publish books, you can self-publish entire TV series or movies. It doesn't, oh, yeah. it, 
there's there's really nothing you can't do at this point. And I mean, like that's basically what Andrew Schultz's story is. It's yeah, like- yeah. Andrew Schultz was is a great example. He was rejected. I, I, from what I understand, he was rejected everywhere. Okay, he was on some TV shows. <laughs> he was on a great show on Hulu. Um, Here's Johnny, which nobody watched, but he had he had a good role on that, but nobody watched it. Anyway, he got rejected everywhere. I don't even know if he was. I don't even know what else was going on. But he's like, screw it. I'm just gonna do my own special. He did on YouTube. He filmed it himself. Four four one. He like performed at four different comedy clubs in New York City in a night, and he put it up, and it's got two million views on YouTube. It, that kind of catapult. He started selling out, you know, huge clubs all around the country. He went on tour, and now I think actually Amazon did offer him. I think it's Amazon offered him a significant amount of money to do a special. Yeah. Like that's what happens when you choose yourself enough. Then people, then you become, you know, then other people say, well. Fuck, now I can do it. Yeah, or, or other people say, now I have to choose him because yeah. he's, he's gotten so big from choosing himself. Yeah, this is, uh, it's, I think that that, and, and it's funny because that's exactly, that's when you do your, when you do your own work, you're doing work for others because now all these people, and then, and I did that special before Andrew Schultz did his thing, but like the whole, I, it was just crazy because it was like, that's exactly, now people are watching him going, oh shit, I can do this. And that feeling of, you know, you never know the opportunities you don't miss. And part of it is because you don't have the eyes to see them. Or it's like you could have done so many other different things, but you never knew those things were options. How many comedians before Andrew Schultz became famous from doing that could have done that and could have done those things, but never knew those were options for them? Right. Or there's the, there's I mean, the if John Corcoran didn't tell me to do this, we wouldn't be talking on my podcast right now. Right. Like you have to kind of that that's the whole idea, too, of exercising your creativity, like writing 10 jokes a day or writing 10 ideas a day is that you start to then also see, well, these people, okay, yes, these people rejected me from doing a radio show. So now I'm going to write down my, my 10 options, what I could do. Oh, one's a podcast. Okay. The next day you write down, well, here's 10 ways I can start this podcast and 10 people I can speak to. So you're exercising that creativity muscle allows you to kind of come up with ideas where it's as easy as possible to choose yourself. And I think that's a real important part of it as well. I mean, I think that that um, that's kind of where the I, the book idea came from from with Bill and I, like the the power Great book, Bible. By the way, the Power Bible. Yeah. Did I finish writing the forward yet? I forget. I, I don't know. If you have, you haven't sent it to us. <laughs> All right, I, I owe you a forward. I'm going to do it. All right, thank you. Uh, uh, cool. Th- done. Podcast over. No. <laughs> so no, so like, but that's where that came from. Is I was writing all these ideas down, and I was kind of like. What, and I started thinking, what do, what do I have a tremendous resource of that I can try to figure out how to monetize or what I can do with? And I was like, dude, Bill calls me like four times a day. Like, we should just record our conversation. We'll just focus. And we end up talking about this shit anyway. So, like, let's just focus our conversation slightly more on it, come up with a list of topics, and then we'll just, like, talk about it and see what comes out of that. So we did that with a, another now not yet published book that was more about frame control and it was more focused it was frame control sales and like comedy and lessons from comedy and, and frame control applied to sales and that book still ex- the manuscript that's a great is- idea too but i but i just want to say the power bible is awesome yeah so, I, I really appreciate uh, you so that, that that's good as like a start uh uh in your series of books because that's kind of like it is a bible it lays down the tenets of you know everything that follows. Yeah, I, I well, so that's why why we ended up pursuing that one is like after we started talking about it, we were going through and we had like five hundred pages. It was like so much. I know you've talked to Bill about this already, but yeah, like, I've read the book. I'm yeah, the first person yeah. probably <laughs> read who's read the whole book. Yeah, and it, it it you know it was interesting because it was like we when we started going through it was like five hundred pages and we were like this is really good but we got to cut we have to be like ruthless with like cutting the fat out of this thing 
And and hopefully we accomplished that because it was a lot of time. It took about nine months to yeah. actually really edit. I mean, I was surprised when I read the book because, you know, I know Bill's written a lot on Quora. You've written on Quora. But, you know, I'm not saying you can't do this because I know better. But it's hard to write a book starting from almost scratch. Like, you have to write a good book. You have to be a good writer. You have to tell stories. You have to have a, an arc in the book. But you guys wrote a good book. Like, this is... This is uh, uh, right now the book of the year for me. So really, yeah, we're early in the year, but <laughs> uh, so day seven. <laughs> it's hey, look, day three. We started World War Three, so anything could happen. Yeah, yeah all but, bets uh, are off in twenty twenty. But but uh, I think it's a great book. Yeah, congratulations on writing that book. It's 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 a complete ripoff of Choose Yourself, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so go for it. What is it? There is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Is that to everything there is a season or something like that? Which, which by the way, is ridiculous, too. There's totally new, new things, things under, under the, the sun. sun. Yeah. Like whoever says there's no new ideas has no new ideas. Like <laughs> there's plenty of new ideas. Like Uber was a new idea. Amazon was a new idea. The Internet was a new idea. And then, yes, you can take older ideas and evolve them. But that makes it a new idea. Yeah. So, what is that? You only need to change something 25 percent in order to get a new patent. Uh, yeah, there was one day there was no one time there were no cups with handles. Then somebody put a fucking handle on one. Now we got cups with handles. That's a new idea. That, totally a new idea. It's different and it's better. So at one point people ate with sticks and then they said, let's put five prongs on it instead of one. And now and it's different. Chopsticks to forks. Now it's different and better. So nobody says, oh, forks aren't new. We had them. They were called chopsticks. Nobody says that. Yeah. So there was so there was choose yourself and then we added shit and made it different and better. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a different book. It's a, it's a great book about uh, all the different ways of persuasion starting important. Like you see all these books about persuasion, which are also good, like Robert Cialdini's Influence. I love that he, book. Yeah. He gives like the the six or seven tenets important for any persuasive moment. But you have a very, uh, you know, interesting take on it which is that yes there are all these techniques for persuasion and you get to those uh in the power bible but it starts off with having this a very strong inner frame you know self-confidence self-acceptance and and you list you know two or three other things and you give techniques and exercises for building that inner frame i think that's the valuable innovative thing you do in the power bible over every other book on influence and then it's a, it's it's interesting and innovative you have different ideas about what's called frame control which is very different from Robert Cialdini's take. But that first part of inner frame is so valuable. That alone is, 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 you know, 10 times worth a hundred times the cost of the book. Thanks, man. I so, really appreciate you saying that, that, um, uh, and I'm going to quote you. I'm going to quote, <laughs> quote, we're well, going to quote that forward. on the book jacket. I, I should quote that in my own forward. Yeah. I said this on his podcast. <laughs> this is my forward. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think it was, it was, you know, when Bill and I did that, we were thinking about what kind of book would we have wanted when we were, really struggling with a lot of this which is by the way that's the way to think but yes yeah well that was like exactly and that's what came up as i was like you know i have all these books i've like you know him and i had all these books or lessons or online courses or we work with coaches where people would tell you here's how to do this in this situation like here's the pragmatic solution to this problem but you're like i the biggest problem that i struggled with was i how do i get myself in the right mindset to even start using some of these techniques and a lot of it is like if you just have the right mindset or you're or you inside of yourself are reconciled to you know the things you want to do or to believing that these things are valuable or you're valuable or, or you know in whatever way or choosing yourself in whatever way you want to do it a lot of that will I don't want to say it'll naturally handle itself because it won't you know you'll still have to take action on it but 
those actions will seem organic to the process once you've worked your own shit out. Does that make sense? Yeah, because uh, like it reminds me of getting good at, let's say, a game. So in in chess, people study the opening moves and they say, oh, this is a good opening. So amateurs will say, oh, this great chess player played these first five moves all the time. And so they'll play these first five moves and they know they're playing as good as a world champion because they made those first five moves. But now what? They don't know what to do. Now they're in an uncomfortable situation. What to do? I think, like, I remember uh, Bill and I would talk about all these situations I was in and he would say, do this, this, this. And then this person's going to do this, this, this. And then you should do this. It's almost like I'm playing chess moves. So I would do it. Bill was 100% accurate. But then I get in this situation. Now, now what? I don't know what to do. So that's where this inner frame comes in. Like if you if it's coming from a core of self-respect, self-acceptance, confidence, now you're going to know what to do. Yeah. Like you're you're it's all coming from a core where you have boundaries, where you have uh, respect about who you are, acceptance about who you are. And then you know what to do. And I think that's that's an important part of skill acquisition, which is, yes, you could learn all the techniques of the greats but you still have to find your core unique voice and what you bring to the table in this area of interest. And I think that's important. Yeah. So that's what we tried to, and I mean, like if we, we, we really, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you've said all of that because I feel like that's what we tried to do. And I feel like we, if we had waited, I really think that the book is going to help people. I appreciate that you think it's going to help people. Definitely. Um, I'm not going to lie. We struggled the whole process. I mean, Bill, you know, I know you talked with Bill about this, but like the whole process, I was like, I hope this is good. Like, I don't even, and, and it's weird to. Yeah, Bill kept saying, Brandon, um, Brandon really doesn't know what he's doing. I wish, <laughs> I wish I could have just done it. He has no clue at all, but I promised him the ride because I come along for the ride and now he's the co-author. No, no, no. I, I know you guys, you, Bill's like super analytical and I think you, you and, and practical and, and you are as well. I don't, I, I don't say you brought one thing and Bill brought another. I think it's a perfect combination for this book. Yeah, but I mean, like, it was funny because, like, you, I just interviewed Ronnie Marmo, who um, plays Lenny Bruce in the in the one-man show, I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because he's done 273 performances, and it's really amazing. It's a, and, and when it comes to New York again, you should see it because, I mean, he starts to play naked. He Lenny Bruce died on the toilet, overdose on morphine naked, and he starts to play that way, and he ends the play that way. And, I, and that's not really giving anything away in terms of, like, you're the whole ride is is what you're paying for but it, it was amazing because he said to me he's like i'm on stage for 90 minutes i have nowhere to hide there's no I- intermission he's up there for 90 minutes he's like i i just have to keep going and he's like i'm recommitting all the time i think that like when you when you talk about choosing yourself you have to continue that's a process of con- you're in relationship with continuing to choose yourself or continuing to commit recommitting to the to the to the project yeah that's that, that's a good point. Like a, a a friend of mine has a book coming out today. Uh, Kamal Ravikant. I don't know if you ever met him or not. Mm. Um, so he has a, he he wrote a book, uh, self published a book by the way. No publisher would take it because it was only you know eight thousand words, and publishers like no, you ha- a book is is sixty thousand words. So he self published it on Amazon. It was called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It. He was going through a hard time, and he had to build his inner frame, and he did it by constantly, re- literally looking at the mirror and repeating. I love yourself. I love yourself. And he did other yeah, things too. Yeah. And we, that's funny. Cause that's one of the things we talk about in the power Bible is like having this, you need to have a process of like hearing yourself say these things. Yeah. And Bill you, uh, even writes about an exercise he does where he like stands in front of the mirror naked and makes fun of all his body parts. I think that's a little bit more 
self-aggrandizing, yeah, like, he's, oh, I'm standing in front of a mirror naked looking <laughs> at myself. But he's got a very good body, by the way. So uh, he's, he's, he's And in, ripped, in his right? defense, that's the only way he can masturbate. <laughs> but, 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 but to your point about, like, recommitting, Kamal, you know, everybody thought, okay, this is the love yourself guy. Uh, obviously, forever after, life is good because he loves himself. No, people constantly have struggles and have to recommit to their ideas. And so he's actually rewritten the book 50,000 words now with the stories that have more lately have happened to him. It's coming out with a major publisher. This time it's not being self-published. And it shows that recommitting is an ongoing process. You can't, you can't stop. It's like, it's like the reason I've gone broke so many times is I would make money and I would think, phew, that is it. I am done now, self-improving. I don't even have to do anything. I've made my money. And then usually within six to 12 months of me thinking that, I am broke and uh, like dead broke from millions. And uh, it's, it's, it, then you have to say, well, what worked? How did I do this the first time? And you have to just start from scratch again and again. And it's so painful. It's, uh, but, uh, you know, it's again that process of I had to remind myself this time I can't stop committing to this. I can't stop to improving, to being a good person, to, to working on myself because it's a never ending battle being human and it's difficult. Yeah, it's the recommitment. It's not just like the the admission. I think this is the next step. Maybe I don't know what the model is, I should say, but it's within your you talking about, you know, having, oh, these are my failures and stuff. It's like the only way to recommit is by meeting yourself where you're at, which takes a level of honesty that you have to, through admission, be like, here's what I've succeeded at, here's what I failed at, here's where I'm at, here's where I want to go, let's keep going. Well, do you ever notice this in comedy? Like, this takes it into a different context, but do you ever, like, you're in the middle of a set, and you know these jokes have killed hundreds of times in the past, but for whatever reason, the audience is... Whatever about so, it. So, you know, ho-hum. Yeah, and 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 you find yourself, you're, like, thinking of other things during your jokes because... It's almost like on remote what yeah, you're, you're saying. Yeah, you're not even present. Yeah, you have. It's almost like in the middle of the act. You have to like figure out. Well, how do I get? How am I my goofy, silly self just having fun on stage again? You have to like recommit to being. Yeah. Funny and having fun on stage. Well, it's just and that's why Bill Burr does shit like fuck with the audience right up front, and, like throw something out that people are going to disagree with. The way that Ronnie said this, just from, from just because it's so fresh, because I talked to him recently, was he said, "I hope I never get good at playing this role." He's 273 performances in, and he's like, I'm still not good at it, and I don't ever want to be good at it. Because yeah, if I get go too remote, good at it... The audience yeah. will the I, audience is an x-ray machine yep. in life, no matter what you're doing. The audience is an x-ray machine. And they can tell when you're just uh, redoing yesterday's performance. Yep. And they get tired. Uh, they get tired quick. And it, it, it's just... It's, it's, it's interesting to me how... And that's why life is a marathon, not like a... Or a marathon of a series of sprints. But you have places to rest too but it's like that's why it's a continuation you're never finished you're never going to be a finished product and i think that people ruin their perspective uh in many different ways by thinking about people or about their life situation as a finished product yeah and i and uh again that's why you have to constantly choose yourself constantly love yourself remind yourself of these things nobody stops going to the gym once they're fit you have to maintain you yeah. have to keep going back to the gym yeah and, and it's, it's easier analogy. to keep it going once you've got it once you're there yeah like it's harder to it's harder to start again when you've stopped um well i want to talk about what is your next the next book you're working on uh it's called 
uh, the Power Bible, and I figured, <laughs> I figured since I have a bigger platform than yours, I will just completely dominate your version of it. No, no, it's called. Um, well, I don't know for sure what it's called yet, but it's called the Power Talmud. <laughs> my my working title, by the way, the Power Bible is an awesome title. I wish I could have called my next book that, but uh, it's called Skip the Line, and it's basically this idea that for whatever it is, you're you're interested in and people's interests change all the time from the ages of 10 to the ages of 90 like people's interests and passions and loves loves change all the time but sometimes you think to yourself well i can't do it i'm i'm 35 years old i'm not going to be a professional i'm 35 years old and i'm five foot six i'm not going to be a professional basketball player or whatever it is you're you're, you're thinking of doing. I'm, I'm 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 80 and i suddenly love the violin i'm not going to be a professional violin player and also, people are going to tell you, you can't do that. Brandon, you can't, Brandon, you can't um, have a radio show. You're not blah, blah, blah. And so, so you're going to have your own doubts. You're going to have other people telling you you can't. And, and when you start something also, you're going to be bad at it, even if you love it. And so the book's called Skipping the Line, or Skip the Line because it gives a bunch of my stories, other people's stories, and then how we all skip the line. Like you're interested in something. How you can basically go from you know worst to first uh, using these ideas and techniques. So uh, a great example is uh, Matt, Matthew Barry, who's the fantasy sports anchor on ESPN, and he was he was a Hollywood screenwriter. Like he was at the top <laughs> of the world yeah. in a profession, a highly competitive profession that everyone would, and he was making a ton of money. Everyone would lo have loved to have been where he was, but he was miserable. All he was interested in was sports. But he was already too old, not in the best shape. He couldn't be. He couldn't be a sports. He couldn't be an athlete. So he he quit everything. Though he quit Hollywood. He got divorced for whatever reason, and he started writing blogs, uh, blog posts on a fantasy sports site for a hundred dollars a post. That was his <laughs> life, and uh, and now he built up and using a lot of the techniques I described in skip skip the line. He built up, and now he's the the only anchor in the world uh, for ESPN fantasy on fantasy sports. Like, if I'm walking him in the street, people are like Matt, thanks so much for your picks last week. Like, I totally killed it, and uh, he's you know, and he loves what he's doing. And, and you know, we you mentioned Andrew Schultz. That's a great example where he's not been doing comedy for 25 years, and then he finally gets that Netflix special at the end. He he skipped the line. He's like, I'm gonna make my own special, put it on YouTube, and boom, became a success. And, you know, he hit the Excel. And what if YouTube hadn't worked for him? No problem. Maybe he would have done it on Instagram or maybe he would have done it in other ways. Like He would have done something else. Right. And, and so there's... You can't keep good a good dog down. Right. Like, so there's lots of ways. He, what he did, though, what that was important was he experimented. I don't know what else he tried beforehand, but he did this YouTube stuff and it became huge. And then, boom, he's now got a special and he totally skipped the line. He skipped like 10 years of the traditional arc of a comedian. And I think Barack Obama is a great example. Everybody told him, you can't run for president in 2008. You've only been a senator for two years. And, and you're black. <laughs> right, right. Everyone told him everything. And by the way, regardless of politics, regardless of whether this is really analyzing the arc of his career, it's not analyzing yeah. politics, but uh, he completely skipped the line of the traditional, oh, I'm going to be a congressman, senator, governor, vice president, and then president. And, then, and that's how I earned it. And no, he he's skipped the line and became president of the United States because he used other things that he was very good at and brought it into the realm of presidential campaigning. And boom, he won. So there's there's 
hundreds of stories and hundreds of ways to, to skip the line. And I think it's more important than ever in today's world because that idea of corporatism where I'm going to stay at the same job for 40 years, that's long gone now. It's breaking down completely. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it still exists for like, let's say a good portion of the country, but it's getting less and less, particularly with you know all sorts of other problems in society. And people just in general are being aware that, oh, my interests can change. I studied for law for seven years, but I'm not interested in it anymore. I want to do something else. And it shows that it's okay to change. It's okay to transfer the skills you learned in one area to another area. And, and Which is, by the way, where a lot of success comes from. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, well, Scott Adams, you've talked to, that's a big part of his thing, which yeah. is like, you oh. take that from another place and that's where that success happens. Oh, Scott Adams is a great example. And this shows why there's different techniques. Like Andrew Schultz's technique was different than Scott Adams' technique. So Scott Adams has what he calls the talent stack, which is, he says, I was, so he created Dilbert, the, the most syndicated cartoon in the world right now in newspapers. So, so he said, I was pretty good. I, I was pretty funny, but not the funniest. I was mediocre at funny, but I was not, uh, but I was pretty funny. I was pretty good at business, but not the best businessman. I was pretty good at drawing, but not the best by far. But combining all three, I was probably the best in the world at the intersection. Hence, Dilbert is the most syndicated cartoon in the world. And by the way, if that hadn't worked, he would have experimented with the next thing. He was trying lots of things. Yeah. That was the thing that that worked. So that's a different technique. Another technique is a friend of mine was, studied to be a lawyer, and but really wanted to work in uh, the, I think it was the Secret Service and then the CIA. And so he, he, he finished his law degree. And then he, instead of being a lawyer, he volunteered to be in the intern program at the, at the Secret Service. Mm. And they're like, why? This is for college undergrads. You just got your law degree. Why are you doing this? And he's like, uh, you know, don't, don't worry about why I'm doing it. But why don't you ask the other members of the Secret Service if, if it would be good for them if there was a lawyer in the intern program? And they were like, yeah, that would be great. So he became basically the number one most valuable intern in the Secret Service's intern, intern program. That's so and funny. he catapulted right up to the top. And then he used that. He to he had to make deliveries to the White House of legal documents. And so suddenly now he's he's got contacts in the White House. He volunteered for their intern program. And they're like, but why? You're a lawyer who already has top secret credentials with the Secret Service. Why are you just volunteering? And suddenly he's the only intern at the White House with top secret credentials and yeah. a law degree catapults right to the top and then ends up in the CIA. So it's kind of this idea of, you know, don't be afraid to take two steps back to be the, the big fish in a small pond and then leverage that to the next four steps forward thing. So that's another technique for skipping. I feel line. like that's, that's especially valuable. Cause I feel like we, what's I've been talking to a lot of people about this lately too, which is that if you, for some reason in the United States, there's this cultural idea of what you had said before, which is like this corporatist concept of like, you get in at the ground floor when you're in your early 20s and then you work, then you're, the narrative of career success is that you accumulate acronyms like SVP, VP, yeah. like C-level, all this kind of stuff until you get to a point where now you're, that's your, that's the arc of your career. Now you're going to retire into your, you know, 50s, 60s with the, those top titles and that's your career. But what's strange is that in other places, I mean, and just, you know, working on Funny Planet, um, which by the way, uh, launched yesterday on I, uh, on Spotify and just coming to iTunes and Stitcher and everything else. Soon. What's Funny Planet? Funny Planet's the, um, it's the other podcast I'm working on. It's based on the project I'm doing. Are you cheating on this podcast you're doing with me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I'm poly. Is it cuter? I wish I knew the. I wish I had podcast had another term that rhymed with polyamorous because I'm poly podcast. Poly poly podcast. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> poly podcast ist. That's a, what a bizarre word to say. Um, yeah. So no, that project is based off of the. Uh, I we went to Iceland. Me and a guy named Zach Tomasovic went to Iceland to shoot a pilot for a TV show that uh, we ultimately wanted to get, we aimed to get on Netflix. But like the concept was we just want to explore the humor sphere. So the world has the atmosphere and the, you know, it's the part of the cultural sphere that's focused entirely on humor, the humor sphere. So we went to Iceland, which is, a com- which is not that far, but a completely different culture, completely bizarre place, and recorded uh, what their comedy was. It was like a docu-series based on, think, um, no reservations, but with comedy instead of food, basically. That was the whole concept. And we decided, uh, you know, the, the TV show, we're two years into this project almost, the TV show. I mean, getting any, t- as you know, getting any TV show picked up is like a insane, you could be, you could, you could be you and not, <laughs> not have a TV show picked up. Like the number of things that, that can happen oh, to get in the way of it. Yeah. By the way, I've, I've, I've come so close six times with major networks, everything, and boom, nothing. Yeah. And that's exactly, so Zach and I were like, well, do we believe in this project? And we were like, and I should say Zach and I and Brendan Gay, who's another comedian, who I think you might have met uh, also. Yeah, but Brendan um, and me and Zach were like, do we still uh, com- do we still believe in this project? We do. We, we I love comedy around the world. I love different senses of humor. I love comedy. I love hanging out with comedians. I love comedians with different perspectives. It's why I did Edinburgh. It's why I lived in France. It's why I travel around Europe and Canada doing comedy. And we decided to recommit to it. So the podcast is us interviewing comedians and, and people on the periphery of comedy from around the world. The first episode launched with Tumi Marake yesterday. She's the most popular black female comedian in South Africa. She has a TV series that won 10 SAFTA awards. She's the first black African woman to get a stand-up special on Netflix. She's she's amazing. She was a delight uh, to talk I to. I think she was in the U.S. recently. Yeah, she was uh, just in She New- was at Stand Up New York. Yeah, she just came, to, just came to New York. Yeah. I should message her actually um, today to see if she's doing anything later because I'd love to meet up with her. Um, anyway, that project, uh, where was this whole diatribe? Launched going? on Spotify. Yeah, but what was the back? What was the part before that? Damn it! What was? What were you talking you, about? You you were going to Iceland. You wanted to. You were, you were interested in this. I'm assuming people told you 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 couldn't do it or you got rejected by Netflix. Yeah, and- a whole bunch of stuff, and we just decided to do it. Man, what was the? But there was a specific line of thing that went into this. I'll remember in a second. Anyway, the point is, is that like we just we do did this whole project and like and it was basically informed by us being like, fuck it, we're just gonna go do this. And how's it doing? It launches today. And launched yesterday. yesterday. And we're, I'm just gonna start pushing it on Reddit today and messaging a ton of people. And, and by the way, this is the sort of project where probably a lot of people said you can't do that because it's already been done. Like Netflix is trying something like that. I've heard other things being pitched. But again, you could say, screw it. I've got my own perspective on this. I have found the funniest comedians for me around the world. I have my own take on what's funny around the world or why it's interesting to, to show people. Nobody says I can't do this. You can't say I can't do it because I just did it. Well, you'll never know where all this stuff is going to end up either. Like you have no idea. Like I didn't know that apparently comedy in Scandinavia is like blowing up and they just they have, and this this is what happened in France in 2013 when I was there, which is that comedy's taken off. It's a, it's one of two American art forms that's taken over the world, the other being jazz, and it's completely it's completely blown up. And they don't have in 2013. There wasn't enough stand up comedians in France to satisfy the the desire to see stand up comedy. So you could be an, an American comedian, come over and sell out shows because they were like. Oh my God! Then a comedian, American, so this is great. We have to see this, 
And the same thing is true in in Scandinavia, which is like you they they don't have enough local comics and talent that's grown up because well they enough. have no sense of humor. By no, the they, way, like yeah. if you have Swedish people in the audience, forget it. That audience is dead. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's so funny. That's and it's different. That everybody thinks Germans are going to be that group of people. Turns out it's the Swedes. Yeah, Swedes. No, Norwegians are the worst. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that was the idea for that uh, that whole Funny Planet thing was us just deciding to go for it. And like, why not? You know what I mean? We got nothing to lose. Yeah, why not? Everything's everything's an experiment. And like some experiments go further than others. And then suddenly you have a show on Spotify, you know, or wherever. You should put it on iTunes too. You should make yeah. it like an album and put oh, it yeah, on it's, iTunes. We're popping it out. It's gonna be everywhere, basically. Anchor's made it really easy, I should say, to like for anybody who wants to do a podcast, anchor's made it like really simple. What's anchor? Anchor anchor.fm will like basically they take a lot of the they they automate a whole lot of the legwork of going into like, now I got to submit the RSS to Spotify. Now I got to submit it to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. They just do it all automatically oh, okay. for you. All right. It's pretty simple for a pretty low price a month. Um, you know, not too bad if you're trying to launch something anyway. Well, uh, I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to watch it first. Funny planet. And I'll send you the trailer. Yeah. You could, you could check it Is out. Is it video? Yeah. We have a two minute trailer that that's what got us into the New York television festival back in 2018 was that, was that trailer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, which is no longer going on, New York Television Festival, which is shows you how much the media landscape is changing. Why don't you create... Oh, we just went to something... Um, this is a weird festival that we went to. It was like the... Um, it, what, 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 Robin, what was that? It was like the New York... It was like a premiere... TV show premiere festival. So these people would wait, make on, um, first episodes of TV seasons yeah. just out of their own pocket. Like, yeah. And there was a festival of like... Pilots. Pilots. Yeah, it was yeah. a pilot festival. And I had never even heard of something like that. I always thought like, oh, you pitch a TV series and then the, a studio makes it and stuff. But here they created the pilots themselves. And there was there was at least one that blew my mind. It was amazing. It was like a science fiction story. And it was great. Like if I was a network, I would have picked this up hands down. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. so cool, man. There's, But the it's amazing because the New York Television Festival went on since the 80s. And then last year was like the first year they didn't have it. And it was weird because we were like, man, this really shows how much this landscape is changing right now. Is that like, I just think that it's, it's a different world. Let's do a festival. Let's do a, I got stand up in New York. Let's uh, make a New York television festival again. New New York television. All right, yeah. cool. I'm down. Um, you going to come to Edinburgh this year? Yeah. When What days are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. I'm trying to do a full run. I got to work it out with, uh, I want to do Just the Tonic again. For some reason, I can't, I have, if I'm going to go to Edinburgh, I have to be in the caves. I have to be in the dungeon that I was in in 2017. I just got to do, I just, it feels like if I was in a really nice venue, it wouldn't be the same thing at all. Like it's got to be, Trevor Noah had his, uh, his, um, his big show at the same location. I want to do that one again. Yeah. And so, so uh, what days is it roughly? It's just all of August, basically. It's all the whole month. All yeah, I would love to go. If I go, like what kind of shows can I do? Um, I have, well, an, I have an audience. I have a platform in Edinburgh. I'm sure I could get. get yeah, you get, could. Well, one, you could do my show. And then two, there's just so many freaking shows that if you I mean, I could connect you with people who would probably all love to have you on their show. Like I could do like 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah. Places. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could totally do that. I'm in. I'm in. And, you know, Edinburgh is an interesting place because it's the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I think it's a good place to try out different things. That's not exactly just be, that. I love not just it. be like set up punchline. You know, like Bo Burnham one one year as like the best upcoming comic, whatever, because he's very his his act as a stand up was extremely different. You could barely even call it stand up. Oh yeah, and then he wins, and so I, I think it's a valuable place to 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 exercise all yeah. your abilities. We could talk off the pod. We'll do, because if you you could actually do depending on how long you wanted to be there for, you could probably end up doing 
a week or a few days or whatever. I mean, it's like the possibilities for for Edinburgh are like nuts because there's just so many different venues. I mean, the whole city is like upside down for the whole month. I would hate to be a local that month. It would just be the worst because it's like literally the city like quadruples in population just for that one month. And it definitely doesn't have the infrastructure for that many people. Like if that... If that went on for longer than a month, I think that city would just completely collapse. That, that, have you already booked your hotel? No, I gotta talk. I gotta message my um, I gotta message the uh, people who I stayed with last time because they kind of have a like a, a house and a process and all this sort of stuff. And uh, we have two kids going off to colleges, but uh, do you want to go? All right, we're go- We're in. All right, she cool. said the master of the house said. I don't. We're, I love that. This is what in. I do. I check with Gloria every time. I like before I do anything. I'm like, can we do? Is it okay? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you got to check. You didn't con- check with me, didn't you? Think that was something worth checking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, babe. I'm so sorry. I just I guess I thought that we t- talked about it already. Yeah. Like, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, this sounds like a good place to wrap up, man. Um, but thank you so much for sitting down and doing this and for bringing in Jay to engineer it. <laughs> Jay, Jay is the man. He's the he's our Uber engineer. And uh, yeah, thanks, Brandon. For, thanks for having me on. Have me on anytime, ever again in the universe. And uh, happy to be on. Yeah, thanks, man. I guess meanwhile the madness continues. Thanks for listening to the Madness Continues podcast. If you like this, please check out Funny Planet, another podcast that I do. You can check it out in the show notes. We are talking to comedians from all over the world and. Uh, please check out any of the books that I've got on Amazon. We talked about uh, the Power Bible here on the episode. You can sign up for the release on that here in the show notes. And otherwise, just take it easy. Have a good time. Thank you for listening. And I would appreciate a like, share, or other rating. Thanks so much. Be well, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>